The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, as the song we just sang reminds us, rivers to the ocean and shadows point to realities. And every good gift that we have here on this earth comes from you and is meant to remind us of you and turn our hearts to worship. Thank you, giver of good gifts. You are a giver of good gifts because you are good. You are goodness defined. You are God. And from you comes all good things, and for you are all things. We meet nothing in life. We meet nothing in life that has not come through your fingers and is not meant to point back to you. Lord, help us to see that. Help us even to see that in hardships, in struggles and trials. You are sovereign over them also, and you mean in them to point us back to you. So, in them, working all things for good. For those of us who love you and are called according to your purpose. So we bless your name for that, Lord, and ask you to help us to bless your name for that amidst the hardships, amidst the trials, when wandering in the wilderness. This is a challenge to us because we are people weak and frail. We feel pain. We know fear. We are uncertain at times. And so I pray for grace that you would sustain us and help us, Lord, to, as you told us in Hebrews 13, to go out with you beyond the camp and to bear with you the reproach that was yours. For we have here no lasting city, but we look for one to come. Lord, give grace, build the people who see in all of life pointers to you and worship and rest, even amidst turmoil. Lord, would you take today's passage and as we open it up, would you help us to understand what you have here in it for us, this event that happened so many years ago. Speak today, Father, by your Spirit, please. Help us to think well. Help us to to focus. Help us to receive open-armed your truth. To not hold it at bay, but to receive it. Change us, I pray, Father, Son, and Spirit, to be more like Christ, worshipers of the Father, for his great glory. Make that happen, Lord, for your glory and for our good, I pray it. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to Second Samuel chapter 15 and to the conspiracy of Absalom. It's been about seven years, a little over seven years, since the events of chapter 13, just two chapters ago, but... 
seven plus years have passed, where we read there about how the firstborn son of David, Amnon, sexually assaulted his sister, Tamar, daughter of David. And when confronted with that wickedness in his own house, David did nothing about it. But Absalom, her brother did, plotting revenge against Amnon and then two years later carrying it out, he killed him and then fled the land to avoid justice. And for three years or so, the the now next in line to the throne prince, Absalom, is away out of the land in an exile of sorts until Joab, as we saw last week, Joab, probably concerned about the succession to the throne, seeing David growing old and growing weak and is worried that with the crown prince in exile out of favor, this is a recipe for civil war, he should come home and be accepted back before he ascends. So he plots as to how to get that done. Schemes up a plan and brings David along with him. David gets fooled, but then agrees anyway, and he brought Absalom home, and two years later, Absalom bowed before the king, face to the ground in apparent submission. David officially exonerated Absalom, all without executing justice, but everything seems all patched up. But there was an ominous note struck, you'll recall, in verses 25 to 27 last week, Absalom is described in a way that reveals something important. He's described in a way that shows he has his eyes on the throne. He's introduced to us as appearing beautiful and handsome and having a great head and with a growing house. The introduction to the throne, the the pattern of introducing those who would be king. He's after the throne and he's going to overthrow David. And that's what brings us to chapter 15, Absalom is home, restored to good standing, and a free hand to do whatever he pleases, and what results is the rejection of the king from the kingdom. And a whole host of questions are raised for us. Who, who do we want to be king? What kind of kingdom do we want? Who are we going to follow? Who has our allegiance? Those are the issues raised for us in chapter 15 today. That's what we're going to look at. Let me read the chapter. I'll read all of chapter 15. It's a lengthy chapter. I'll read it, and then I'll pass back through it to make sure that we understand the details of it, and then we'll make a couple of overarching observations. 2 Samuel chapter 15. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron, 
For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilite, David's counselor from his city Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Carathites, and all the Pelathites, and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you. And may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him, And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. And then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if, he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to me. The king also said to Zadok, the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz your son and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, 
Ahithophel was among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. And David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house... Tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Passage begins, lengthy passage, a lot of details here, but try to catch some of the most important ones. We note that it begins with the after this. It's not very specific. We don't know when exactly it is. But after Absalom was restored, he took to traveling around in an interesting manner. This is that he got himself a, a chariot and horses and 50 runners and his guards. This is not just showy opulence. It's a political statement. This is traveling in the manner of royalty. That's how kings traveled, at least the kings of the nations. He's traveling around, he's making a statement about who he looks like. He looks like he should rule. And then he does some things in particular. Verse 2, he would get up early, it was his habit, to get up early and go intercept people who were on their way to the gate. They're coming in to go to the gate. Now the gate in ancient cities, Jerusalem being no exception, was a place where justice was dealt where the, the judge of, of the local city or town would meet. In Jerusalem, there probably were other places. And it seems that the king welcomed in the, the woman in the last chapter, probably welcomed her into his palace. But in gates, justice was dealt. And these people are on the way to the gate to have their case. Perhaps it was a case too complicated for the local officials, or perhaps it involved the government. But they've come up to lay their case before the king, and Absalom would intercept them and say, Where are you from? which again is not just incidental, not small talk, because when they answered, I'm from such and such a place in Israel, contra Judah, I'm from Israel, then he would keep talking. And he would talk to them and say, mm, you've got a really good case. Unfortunately, the king's not interested. Not what I would be like if I was king. Not hard to see what's going on there. He's exploiting a, an ever-present tension between Judah and Israel. David's from Judah. These guys are from Israel. Israel supported Saul in the past. So they were always a little bit slow in picking up with David. And he says, this king, unlike I would be, this king has no time for you, and he has no concern for justice. Certainly not interested in giving you what you deserve and what you should rightly have, as we both, you and I, can see. And on top of it, looking all regal with his chariot and his entourage and talking about if I was king and justice that I would give to you, he's the consummate people's man. When they bow down before him to pay homage, it says, he would reach out his hand and pick them up and embrace them. Brother. He's a campaigner. 
He should run for office. He is running for office. Thus he did to all of Israel, and he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Which does not mean simply that he won them over. It stole. Gained something by stealth. Stole their hearts. He's laying the groundwork as he deceives them. And we don't know how long it took, but eventually he comes to put this plan in action. Many of our English translations say four years in verse 7. The Hebrew says 40. But some of our translations have put in four because they assume that it must be a mistake. Because surely it's not been 40 years since Absalom came back. David was only king in Jerusalem for 33 years, so it can't be 40. So some have put in four. But 40 is the word that should be here. There's no reason to change the Hebrew. It says 40. I think it's referring to 33 years of David's reign in Jerusalem and seven years of his reign in Hebron. This is 40 years. This is at the end of his reign. And Absalom himself, born very early at Hebron, is probably 40 years old. Fits better with the the timing and with the theme that's developed throughout the rest of this chapter. There's a theme that gets built here to which the number 40 should be attached. A theme of Exodus. In 16 and 17, we're told that the king went out. The king went out. And then over and over and over again, 18 following, passed by, passed on, passed by, passed, passed, passed. Making ring in our ears the idea of Passover as the people head out into the wilderness to wander, as David said, I know not where. There's a theme here being developed, which we'll come back to later. But Absalom lays the groundwork and eventually decides that it's time to act. So he swings into his plan to action, covered over with worship, and he asks for David's blessing and is allowed to go to Hebron, his birthplace and the place where David was anointed king. And he takes along 200 of the movers and shakers of Jerusalem. We have no idea they're about to be props on a stage to make it look like the city supports him. But with, with apparent public support and with spies throughout the land and with Ahithophel, David's ultra-competent counselor, the, the conspiracy is off to a good start. David heard about it and knew that he had to flee. So he leaves Jerusalem, it says, so that the city won't be struck with a sword and so that he won't be captured. And he leaves behind, it says, ten concubines to keep the house, to, to guard it. But he goes out. The king went out. The king went out. And it's emphasizing again and again and again, the king, the king, the king. His name kind of moves to the back seat and his title comes forward. He's the king. He's the king sent away. Sent away out of the city with his household, with his largely Gentile followers, interestingly. Crosses the Kidron Valley weeping and goes up the Mount of Olives mourning. Hard not to think of something else. We'll come back to that too. He goes out without the ark. Everybody assumes he wants to take the ark with him, but he stops it and sends it back. I don't need the ark. I need God. If I don't have God and I have the ark, it doesn't matter. It's David's perspective here. It's a very Godward-oriented 
thinking and speaking. He sends the ark back in hope of seeing it again. He goes out sorrowing, knowing that obviously this is the consequence. This is the consequence the Lord spoke about, the sword from his own house. Is it going to be the end of his reign or not? He, he doesn't know. But he goes out hoping to see it in how he sends the ark back and in how he instinctively prays, Oh God, help me, when he hears about Ahithophel. Help me turn Ahithophel's counsel to foolishness. And then God sends him Hushai. He sends back into the city. And we'll see how that plays out later. Here he is, marching out of the city, rejected, mourning, as a new king comes to sit on the throne. That's the passage for today. What are we to make of this? It's a real event. It's a political event. A couple thousand years old. What are we to, what are we to make of this today? Well, we need to approach a passage like this and look at it and understand not just the, the details of this particular passage, but to understand where it sits in its larger biblical context. And when we... We talk about the details and then take a step back. What we're going to see is that it sits in a, a flow. There's, there's a, ch- a chain of which this is one piece, and it's going to remind us of something looking backwards and something looking forwards. But let me f- first start by pointing out something about the good king here and how we can identify him. So here's my first observation. God's chosen king remains faithful even when faced with the wilderness. God's chosen king remains faithful even when faced with the wilderness. Even when faced with rejection and loss. Even when turned out to wander. To wander in the wild away from what should rightfully be his, facing uncertain and fearful circumstances. In that setting, God's Son, God's chosen King, holds fast to him. That's what we see here going on with David. He's now once again on the run from another king who wants to kill him. It's, it's a bit like we are right back where we started at the beginning of David's reign running into the wilderness away from a king who wants to kill him. It's not Saul this time, it's Absalom. So this certainly is is a thematic connection with the beginning of David's life, but the the main backwards pointer, as we look at at this line, the main backwards pointer is not just the beginning of David's life, it's back to, as I mentioned already, the Exodus. Couple these these verbal pointers, the 40, and the, the king went out, and the king went out, and all the faithful ones who followed him Passing, 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 passing until they go into the wilderness to wander. This is clearly meant to represent to us an an exodus of sorts. And it is an exodus that is presented to us cast in faithfulness. Indeed, there is sorrow here. It is a sorrowful mourning thing. The, the land mourns, David weeps, the people weep. It's, it's, it's clear that it is a sorrowful, tragic event, 
but it is particularly marked by faithfulness. We see it in little things and in big things. Little things. David leaves Jerusalem. He wants it left intact, and he leaves behind concubines to keep, that is, to guard his house. They are representatives of his kingdom, symbols of his kingdom, and he leaves them expecting to come back and get them. Now, obviously, Absalom is going to violate them, as, as we're going to see, showing that he has taken hold of the, of the, the house of David. But David's act in leaving them behind is, is a little symbol of future hope, saying, I'll be back. Little things, faith. Bigger things. His instinctive prayer in verse 31. He hears about a problem, and you might be inclined to think, here he is experiencing the consequence of a sin, cast out, this is my punishment on you, we might, we might be inclined to think. But David is thinking instinctively, I should ask God to help me with this. Oh Lord, help me with this bit of bad news. Turn Ahithophel's counsel. That's faith showing up in instinctive prayer, but particularly with the turning back of the ark. It's been a while since we've talked about the ark, but the ark of, of, the, of the covenant of God is essentially a box. Not familiar with the ark. It's essentially a very ornate box. Some some angelic beings over the top of it, carried on poles, covered in gold. It is presented to the people as God's earthly throne, mirroring His heavenly throne, to be placed in an earthly structure, mirroring mirroring His heavenly palace. So this is in God's earthly palace, God's earthly throne, where God would sit, He would manifest Himself, present Himself to the people of God. God right there. And this box, if you will, is is a power center. Recall, we've seen through 1 and 2 Samuel, this box exudes power, strikes down Israelites who treat it improperly. It brings curses and, and plagues on Gentiles, on Philistines who treat it improperly. It casts down stone idols, inanimate objects. It, it is a, a little power container because God uniquely presents Himself there. Anybody with, with half a clue would say, I need to take that with me into the wilderness. I need the power of God. And David, in a remarkable show of faith, says no. Because to take that would be to take God into my hands and try to control Him. To have Him owned in my possession. I don't have that right. Nor do I have that need. David's faithfulness is shown here in that he says, take the ark back, and if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will protect me, he will uplift me, and he will bring me back into the presence of this ark. And if not, having the ark wouldn't matter. I'm in his hands. He will do what's good. That is a a surrendered, let go, humble faith. Made all the more remarkable because it is in the very context of rejection and being sent out into the wilderness. That's what's going on here. What are we supposed to see in it? 
What do we do with that? Well, here's the timeline, the big timeline. This is supposed to make us think of something backwards and forwards. Looking backwards, clearly, it has several different notes here that make us think of an exodus. Points us back. So do you know the story? Many of you do, but here's what's going on here right now. Right now, in this moment, here's what's going on. I'm going to talk to you about something, and you need to think about it. Because you need to see that more than just incidental little facts or little events in history, God is at work like this, wider than my arms could reach. And He does things over vast, long, huge periods of time that are laying out markers to be strung together so that you can see something. You can see a pattern and you can begin to understand what God is doing, what He is about. If you just look in little points, individual iterations of God's work, you don't see the big picture. Stand here and look back at God carrying His chosen Son into the wilderness to test Him. Out of Israel I called my son. I call, out of Egypt I called my son and I called him out into the wilderness to test him. I made him, them, I made him my son by covenant to test him in the wilderness to see if my son would hold faithful to me. And how did it go? They all perished in the wilderness because they did not have faith. And so God said, well, let's scrap that plan. No. He said, see the pattern? Let's keep moving ahead. I'm going to call out another son, mine by covenant, into the wilderness to test him to see if he will be faithful. David. beginning of his life, and now here particularly at the end. Okay, here's my son who has, as we have plainly seen, walked in sin. Is he faithful? Is he mine? Let me call him out into the wilderness to test him. I will send the king out, and I will put in front of him wandering and wilderness and fear and uncertainty and perhaps death. And let's see what this son does. How does it go? He responds faithfully to him. This son, this one says, I'm in your hands. Humbly, I give myself to you. But not perfectly, of course. Because as we have seen, he is not perfectly faithful. He's not the one that we need. So here we have a pattern. Forward to whom? Another son called out into the wilderness, called out to see, 
This one who is my son, I declare him to be today my son, the one on whom I have great pleasure. Let's call him out into the wilderness and see what will come of him. Forty days he wanders in the wilderness until he meets the other would-be king, prince of this world. And he stands there in the wilderness tested. And how does it go? God's chosen Son shows the fact that He is the chosen Son by remaining faithful even in the face of the wilderness. Sent out, He proves that He's the King we need, but He was rejected nonetheless. And sent out of the city again, weeping up the Mount of Olives, sent out of the city again to Golgotha to die because of sin, as consequence for sin. Not not His, but ours. Through the Scripture, God builds patterns. The the fancy word for that is types. Models. He builds types throughout the Scripture to show this is what I'm looking for and how I improve it and finally finish it. There is a son rejected, sent out of the city to bear the consequence of sin. And this is, I'm telling you this, you know it, this is what you got to think about. This is remarkable, glorious, because it not only puts a marker on top of Jesus and says, this is God's chosen King, the one to remain faithful through all of the wilderness wanderings, through all the rejection, through all the temptations, through all the trials. This one is the one. It does more than just identify Him. It gloriously creates the Gospel. Think, Christians. This creates the gospel that this chosen son would be sent out and rejected by man indeed, but most pointedly rejected by the Father Himself. That is a wilderness. Worse than any desert. That this son on whom the Father by by declaration, audible sound, said, I am well pleased with you, said, No, I am not. Sent Him out into the wilderness, up to the cross, nailed Him there and died. Killed Him. And what comes out of His mouth is, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Faithful all the way to the end. If He finds pleasure in me, He will restore me and bring me back into His presence. And indeed He did find pleasure in this faithful one right at the heart of the worst rejection and the greatest wilderness we will ever imagine. It is an awesome thing. Model touched on right here as we see the David, the father David, Walk out up the Mount of Olives, weeping. (laughs) It is Jesus going to the garden. It is Jesus on the night He was betrayed. It is Jesus faithful all the way to the end. 
amidst the rejection of his friends and of his father. And he creates the gospel. That is, he creates in that faithfulness, creates the good news that there is atonement for the sin of those who reject him. We read this story and we have tapped into a significant biblical thread. The great man of sorrows, rejected but faithful all the way to the end for you. This serves as, as an identifying mark. If you're, if you're back in, in the time of 2 Samuel, you read this, and there's a marker laid down there for you of the great son of David will look like this. For us, looking backwards, we can see, see the mark, and we can identify him, and we can worship him for creating the gospel. If, if the son was not faithful, there is no atonement. Do you realize that? If the Son embraces all the temptations thrown at Him, you deserve this, you should have that. There is no gospel. If He calls down the legions of angels from heaven which were at His command to turn away the nail and the spear, there is no gospel. Glory. There's, there's a marker there. There's a, there's a cause for worship there. But, but in that, what's, what's primarily laid before you today is a call for allegiance because there are, in this chapter and in every moment of your life, there are always two kings calling for your allegiance. Here's one, and then there's another, a usurper. You're called by two voices to give allegiance to one or the other. And the supremely difficult thing for you and me as human beings is that one of them is calling for your allegiance while he walks out into the wilderness towards a cross. That's not so attractive. And another one is dressed up like a king, hugging you as brother, telling you how smart and wise and good you are. And how if he was your ruler, he'd give you what you want. That's a tremendous challenge to us. But one of them is the rightful chosen king. And the call in the Scriptures constantly, I read it from Hebrews 13 earlier, let us then go out with him outside the camp to bear with him the reproach that he bore. For here we have no lasting city. That only makes sense if here you have no lasting city. If you're looking for a lasting city, don't follow him. If you're looking for a lasting city here, don't follow him because he's not going to give it to you here. Brothers and sisters, the call put before you between the challenge of these two kings is to follow this one as he heads out into the wilderness. That's challenging because the other one still lives and is still strong. That's my second point here. For now... There is still another king who is always appealing to you for your allegiance. Here, now, in the world, there remains another king who always, in every moment, is appealing to you. 
Absalom's basic tactic in this text is his basic tactic. Absalom's tactic is deception. He stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He appeals to them based on what looks good, on what feels good, and what sounds good. None of it is true. But it's appealing to Israel and to all of humanity. We always want a king like the kings of the nations, somebody who looks strong, who looks the part, and can protect us and provide security. We are inclined always towards horses and chariots. And understand, I mean that metaphorically. We are inclined towards trusting in horses and chariots, towards trusting in the things that we can see and put our hands on and are reckoned as powerful in this world. So He will always offer that. We are innately inclined towards people who tell us, you are in the right. What flattery and how appealing. You are in the right. You have a good case. You have correctly discerned what is appropriate here. If only somebody else would, but you are good and right. What an appeal that is affirming and that resonates with us. And how good it feels to be welcomed in as a brother, not put down as a subject. That is the deception. But the thing that we must notice is that there is a deception coming out of Absalom's mouth, coming out of his hands. There's a lure being thrown out. But like a magnet, magnets only work where there's metal present. A magnet needs a receptor. The deception can come, can come, can come, but the only reason it gains traction when it comes to me or to you, to, to Israel here, the only reason that it, that it has any pull is that there's something on the other end in the heart of those who are listeners and those who are receivers. The problem is not in the deception. The problem is in the deceived. The Bible's word for that is unbelief. It's not an intellectual problem. It's not that I'm not smart enough to see through the charade. It's that my heart wants to trust what I can grab and hold on to, like a chariot or a horse or an ark. This must be faced, Christian. Now, if you're not a Christian, the same thing applies to you too. It's your basic problem also, unbelief. The gospel is plenty clear. You're a sinner. God judges sin perfectly and completely with condemnation and wrath. But He provided a good and faithful Son to bear your sin instead if you trust Him and surrender to Him. That's plenty clear. No intellectual problem here. You don't believe it. You don't want it. That's the problem. So it's your problem too. But Christians, this we must face this. And we must face it. We must notice the only reason that the deception of the world, that the voice of this other king has any pull in me, is because of me. Because of the unbelief that lives in me. And that must be faced not in a, 
You can see me wagging my finger at you, not in a wagging finger or a a pull out a hammer to whack you sort of way, but in an honest way. I I was talking with somebody this last week and I used language of, of as a detective rather than a prosecuting attorney. A detective is looking for what happened, what's going on behind and under. A prosecuting attorney wants to know that so as to convict you and throw you in prison. A detective is looking to understand. You need to examine and face this as a detective, understanding what's going on in me when the the two kings appeal for my allegiance. What's going on in me is unbelief. I hear the king say, come out with me, and I watch him march out into the wilderness and say, no. No. That will hurt. That is frightening to wander I know not where. No, I don't want any part of that. I want to know what I am doing and where I will go and how I will be protected. Who will take care of me? Every, every place in your life in which you are challenged and called to give allegiance to another king, another kingdom, in other words, every area in your life where you struggle with sin, that's what I'm talking about here, sin. What's going on there always is a, a lure, a, a piece of bait laid out in front of you, dancing in front of your heart, asking, do you really think that God would be good to you? That His Word would be true? I didn't think so. Come with me. It's all about belief and unbelief. So what you do is you believe more. That should have just been a little mental skip in your mind. Because you should have asked, how do I just believe more? That's the problem. That I don't believe. So I just just do it? No. No. The whole problem is one of belief and unbelief. And right here at this point, we are drawn up short as humans. Because you just bumped into something right there where your heart said, "Uh uh-uh. No. How do you change that? You don't. You cannot bless God for his gracious intervening saving work in you to to make you new David's whole need the the people's need here is, is, is about this question of faith and we see we have seen before we see it again here in this passage that God repeatedly lays out in front heart-changing, faith-building actions from, on his part. He does it again here with David. David says, verse 31, Ahithophel is among the conspirators. Oh Lord, please turn away the counsel of Ahithophel. And what do you know? Hushai shows up 
When did Hushai start his journey? Five seconds ago? No. Long time passed. Who knows, who knows how long? But he started his journey and he arrives at David's, in David's presence right after David hears about this. God's provision to turn Ahithophel's counsel. Here's your problem. Here's your need. Look at me, faithful to you. Can't you be faithful to me? And what happens in that as God shows Himself faithful, God shows Himself trustworthy, what happens in that is the miracle I trust. Why do you trust anybody? Because you've seen their character. And, and a belief rises in you that I can trust that person with whatever it is. We trust different people with different things, but we, don't, we only trust them with things that we have seen their character in and believe them now to be trustworthy over. God acts repeatedly, graciously to show you His trustworthy nature. And what happens in you, not you make happen, what happens in you is a belief that that person, God, is trustworthy. It's a miraculous, gracious work of God. It happens in little moments like this where God shows Himself aware of a need and willing to meet it. It happens in the events of your life. It happens in the Scripture. And it most particularly, it most particularly happens at the cross. He calls you now to come out with Him, Christian. He calls you now to come out with me outside of the camp and bear the reproach that is mine and is to be yours. That is a challenge, that is a call you will always face because in this life there remains two kingdoms, one that hates the king and is powerful as the prince of this world. You will always face it. It is fair to say this is a wilderness. Start to finish. Now there are acute experiences of wilderness that you will also go through. But it's one wilderness or the other. You wander, looking for home. And always in that context, the king appeals to you, come out with me, come out with me into the wilderness faithfully, trusting me. Why? That looks like that's going to hurt. That will be uncomfortable. That is uncertain. I do not know if I can trust you. Okay, let me, let me pull out. I could talk about how I was faithful to you yesterday in that event. I could show you a promise in the Bible. But in particular, son, daughter, let me remind you of something. I am the faithful king who went first into the wilderness and went to the cross for you. I have saved you from all things. Will I not also, along with my redeeming death, give you everything else you need? Yes, is the answer. There are two voices, Christian. There are always two kings talking to you, pleading for your allegiance. One offers you what you want, and it's a lie. 
One offers you what you really want. Favor and presence. It's the truth of God. Would you go with Him? Would you follow Him? Christian, He promises you Come out with me, Ittai. Wander who knows where in the wilderness. But the one thing I can tell you in the wilderness is that you will be in my presence. And that's what Ittai wants. Remember Ittai, the guy right in the middle of the passage? Why don't you go back to safety? Now I want your presence. I want to be with you, whether for life or for death. I want to be with you. Okay, then come. Christian, he says that to you. Will you come out with him? Think about that right now. We're going to stop and pray. Think about that right now. There are a hundred different ways that he calls you to himself, situations in which he calls you to himself, to trust him, to give him your allegiance. Ask him, in what, Lord? What now for me? Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.